Welcome to the East City Wesleyan Church podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and if you would like to learn more about East City Wesleyan Church, please go to ecw.org.nz for more information. Now, here's your podcast. When I was a camp counselor as a teen, I was about 17 years old, I worked at a camp on an island in the middle of a massive river, and we had a ping pong table that all the other camp counselors loved to play, and we were really, really competitive. We were kind of a little bit mean, we wouldn't want to necessarily play with the campers sometimes. We would sometimes because, you know, our job is to take care of them and to love them and everything, but we really just wanted to play with us because we really wanted to play really competitive games. Well, I was counseling this one week for 10 to 12-year-olds, and there was this one kid in my cabin. He was probably about this tall. He was really short for his age, and he said, hey, Joey, can I play ping pong against you? And I was like, ah, okay. I was like, sure, I'll love to play ping pong with you. Sounds great. Anyway, so he got on the other side of the table. I got on one side of the table. I was like, this is going to be so tedious. Tedious. I'm just going to hit the ball back and forth. I'll have to like, dial it down to at least like 20% of my skill. I know I'm going to have to do that already. And, and he can barely see. His eyes are just right at the top of the table. And I'm like, this is not going to be fun for me. But you know what? I'm going to sacrifice my time. I'm going to serve him and just be present for him. I'm going to do that. So I, I gave him a light little serve across the table. And out of nowhere came this speeding bullet across the table. And he won the first point. And I was just like, what the heck just happened there? I was like, OK. So I, I served it a bit harder. He served it back. We had a really intense rally for like a good 15 seconds, which in ping pong is a good, a good solid rally. And we continued the game. It was incredibly competitive. I was shocked every single time he hit it with such force across the table. I barely won, and I was kind of sweating by the end of it. But the thought that came to me was, it's not what it looks like. There's more to this kid than what I thought. There's more to what is going on here than what I thought. He is incredibly skilled at ping pong. And then I asked him, I said, so is ping pong like your sport? Like, hockey's my sport. Maybe here, rugby might be somebody's sport. Is ping pong your sport? He's like, yeah, I play ping pong every single evening. Went back at home. I'm like, okay, no wonder you're so good. I shouldn't have prejudged you there. I shouldn't have had any prejudice. I shouldn't have considered your height and your circumstance as a factor with your skill. It's not what it looked like. There is more to him than what meets the eye. And our scripture reading this morning is kind of like that. It's not what it looks like. There's more that is going on. There's something that is happening underneath the surface of the scripture that we might not necessarily be aware of. I think we're all in a situation, we've all been in a situation, I think, where it's not what it looks like. So, for example, maybe, you, um, maybe you, you're playing a sport. Maybe you're always picked last for some reason. And then this one time, your friends wanted to play this one particular sport that you know you're good at. But once again, you were picked last. And then out of nowhere, you come up and you score the goal or get the point or do whatever is necessary to win the game. And everybody looks at you like, huh, it's not what it looks like. There's more to what's going on than meets the eye. Maybe you've been in that situation. Maybe you come from a very difficult background. Maybe... Right now, your life is really comfortable, really good. You've worked incredibly hard, but you've come from a really difficult background where you've had to overcome a lot of different obstacles in your life. 
And when somebody looks at your life now, they might think, wow, they have everything so easy. Everything just falls into place. But what you're really thinking in your head is it's not what it looks like. There's more to the story than what you see. This is, I believe, what's happening in the passage this morning. It's more, it's not what it looks like. There's more to the story. And we're in a series called Final Words from the Cross where we're looking at Jesus' final words. Typically, somebody's final words are their most important words. The things that kind of condense what they really need to say and communicate and get across to the people who care for them and who they care for. So final words are very important. And what we see on the cross in Matthew 27, 45 through 46, is Jesus saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And these words, they bring about a lot of emotion in us, I think. Because not only is Jesus dying in this moment on a cross in one of the most brutal ways that somebody can die in the first century, really the most brutal way probably anyone could die in any century, but the first century in particular, his friends had all abandoned him except for a few women and, and John. And on top of that, Jesus is saying, God, why have you forsaken me? Not only have all my friends left, not only am I dying on a cross right now, but God, you've forsaken me. That's how that's what we're, we're feeling these emotions when we read this passage. But I'm here to tell you, it's not what it looks like. There's more to what Jesus is saying than what we can see on the surface. So if I had a title this morning, and if you're taking notes, the title is, It's Not What It Looks Like. There's more to the story. I love movies for this one reason. Movies portray it's not what it looks like so well. There's one movie that did this particularly well, The Dark Knight Rises, the third installment of the trilogy with the Batman series with um, Bane and how... Uh, I'm going to ruin the movie for you, so if you haven't seen it by now, I'm so sorry, but I'm going to ruin it. Basically, Batman is defeated by Bane. His back is essentially broken and messed up. Some discs are ruined, and he gets thrown into... Well, placed into a pit of about like 200 feet deep with a whole bunch of other prisoners. And in that moment, while I'm watching the movie, I'm thinking to myself, there is absolutely no way that Batman is getting out of this situation. I'm like, I, the director's ruined it. I'm not going to believe anything the director, the writer throws at me, because there's no way a man whose back is broken, who is in a pit with no way out, is getting out and saving Gotham City. There's no way. Well, if you've watched the movie, of course there's a way. It's not what it looks like. Through hard work and perseverance, Batman actually does a lot of push-ups, a lot of sit-ups, heals his back, and then somehow climbs out of this pit and then saves Gotham City. Because in that story, in that movie, it's not what it looks like there was more. Even though as I was sitting in the theater and I was seeing a situation that was completely hopeless, the director and the writers had something that the audience didn't know yet. There's hope in this situation. There's something else that's going on. And that movie portrays that so, so well. And the same thing is happening with Jesus on the cross, especially in this moment. Even though what we're feeling is a sense of hopelessness, what is really being expressed under the surface, if we just do a little bit more work in trying to understand the passage, just a little bit more, we're going to see that there is more hope expressed in what Jesus is saying on the cross than what we can even bear or even see. There's hope, not hopelessness, in what Jesus is saying here. 
There's a technique that uh, New Testament writers use, and really it's more of an economical technique. If they quote a passage in the Old Testament, what they really want you to do is take the entirety of what they're quoting and look at the broader context. So for example, this passage, this, what Jesus is saying is actually a passage out of Psalm 22, 1. So because of a lack of space and a lack of time, Jesus is only saying the first verse of this 33-verse psalm. So what we need to do is we need to read into what this psalm is really talking about. So the psalm starts out like this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but find no rest. The story that is being portrayed, the scene that is being portrayed here in the first half of the psalm, it, psalm is bleak. Hopelessness is written all over this psalm. And this is what Jesus is expressing. But there's a shift that happens in the psalm where you go from hopelessness to hope. And when Jesus is saying on the cross is even though what you see right now with me dying on the cross looks like a hopeless picture, just wait. There's more to what's going on than you can see. It's not quite what you look like. And the psalm continues with passages like this. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. To him indeed shall all who sleep in the earth bow down. Before him shall bow all who go down to dust. And I shall live for him. So we see a picture of hopelessness, but then it quickly shifts to hope. And this is what Jesus is trying to portray on the cross. Even though what you see is a man dying on a cross, what is really being expressed is God's kingdom, his rule and reign coming. Because this passage, this psalm, is talking about how even though the situation that the psalm writer is in is absolutely horrific and horrendous, God is still ruling, God is still reigning, God is still in charge. And what Jesus is doing with this psalm is he is, he is using this psalm to express that very thing. That even though what you see is a dying man, what is really happening is God is becoming king. Jesus is becoming king. And you might be asking the question, Joey, how the heck is God becoming king on the cross? What the heck does that even mean? That doesn't make any sense to me. And I'd be like, yeah, you're right. That doesn't make sense, but I'll, I'll raise you one. All right? I'll call that and I'll raise you one. I'll say, it's not only God becoming king, but it's Jesus's coronation ceremony is the cross. His coronation is the cross. Let me explain. Here we go. So throughout most of church history, when you, we read the Gospels, even modern history, when we read the Gospels, what we see is the birth narrative of Jesus and the crucifixion, crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. We see those two elements as the most primary aspect of the Christian faith. And I would, I'm not disagreeing with that at all. They are the most primary elements of the Christian faith. But there's this still 
roughly 20 chapters of the Gospels in between that tend to get neglected throughout church history that do a lot to explain the significance of the birth and the crucifixion and resurrection. I'll give you an example of how this is portrayed throughout history. The Apostles' Creed that we say sometimes during communion on Sunday says, I believe in Jesus Christ, his, whole, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. So the birth. And then the very next line it says, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. And then I'm scratching my head. Wasn't there stuff that happened in the middle there that we kind of need to believe? What, what, what's, what's with the middle bit that you just completely glossed over? We, do, we see this again in the Nicene Creed, which was written a couple hundred years later. He came down from heaven, he became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and he was made human. He was crucified for under us under Pontius Pilate, he suffered and was buried. But we're missing the story. We're missing the middle bit that is probably explains the significance of that actual, what, what is being said here. We're missing the middle bit. So I'm going to try and explain the middle bit very quickly. All right? We'll see what happens. The very first words out of Jesus' mouth in Mark 1.14 is this. Behold, the kingdom of God, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. If you are somebody who has written papers for school before or essays or maybe even a large dissertation or something, Typically, the first thing that you say, your first introduction, is what you're arguing. And this is no different. The very first thing that Jesus says in Mark's gospel, and also throughout the other gospels in different ways, is that, behold, the kingdom of God, God's rule and God's reign, has come, is being fulfilled, has been fulfilled, and it gets fleshed out a little bit. It's actually fulfilled in the person of Jesus coming to earth. Therefore, what should you do? What you should do is wait a second, look at your life, and get on board with what God is doing right now. Get on board and believe in the gospel. This is like the thesis statement. This is like the introduction of the gospel. And what do we see throughout the rest of the gospels? Is an explaining of what the kingdom of God is like. That's what we see. The gospels are obsessed with one theme. There's a bunch of sub-themes throughout the Gospels, but the Gospels are obsessed with one major theme, and that is, what is God's kingdom like? What is it like? What does it mean for God to rule and to reign? We know what earthly kingdoms look like. We've been given plenty of examples of what it looks like for man to rule and reign. But what does it look like for God to rule and reign? And this is what we see in Jesus' ministry for three years. And it sheds light on the significance of his crucifixion and his resurrection. So we see Jesus throughout the Gospels healing people from various diseases, casting out demons, and forgiving people of their sins. He's constantly doing these things. And what he's trying to explain to the people around him, the people who he's doing these things to, is that when God is ruling and when God is reigning, he's making things right. He's turning things into what they should have been in the first place. He is forgiving people of their sins, allowing their relationship with God to be restored. He is healing people of bodily um, disabilities and functions. 
He is casting out evil spirits that are preventing people from worshiping God. He is making things right. And that's what it means for God's rule and God's reign, his kingdom to come. It is the making right of things the way they always should have been. And then there's parables that Jesus taught in the middle as well. Parables are stories that typically have just one thing they want to get across. And as you read the Gospels, you'll see a parable start like this. The kingdom of God is like dot, dot, dot. And then it explains. There's so many parables like this. And one is, the kingdom of God is like a treasure in a field that a man stumbles upon. He finds it, buries it in the field, goes home, sells everything he has, and buys the field. The kingdom of God is like a merchant trying to find fine pearls. Upon finding just one valuable pearl, he goes home, sells everything he has, and purchases that pearl. What is, it trying to, what is Jesus trying to explain? That the kingdom of God, God's rule, and God's reign in your life is the most valuable thing that you can possess. It's the most valuable thing that you can possess. But what we do know is that God's kingdom looks very different in the Gospels to the earthly kingdoms around at the time and even today. God's kingdom is not concerned with the powerful, the high, the people in high society. It, obviously, God loves everybody. But what we see in Jesus is for God's kingdom to come, it goes to the people in the corners of society, the marginalized in society, those who are overlooked, who not only believe that they have no value, they embody the fact that it seems like they have no value, that nobody wants them, that their life is hopeless, that they don't measure up to the standards of the world. And what do we see? We see Jesus embracing people like this. We see people, Jesus loving people like this, giving to people like this. And what this does is it flips on its head what God's kingdom, what kingdoms should look like. Instead of a hierarchy structure of where the powerful conquer, Jesus is saying the last will be first and the first will be last. It's a complete flipping of what we see a proper and a good and a godly kingdom should look like. So that's what we see in the Gospels of what it looks like for God's kingdom to come, for his rule and his reign to be present. God's kingdom is not what it looks like. And what we see through the crucifixion of Jesus is God's kingdom being realized in a new way. What's really interesting is as Jesus is walking up to his crucifixion, as he is on trial, he's adorned with, ironically, from the guard's perspective, purple robes, which are royal robes, a crown of thorns, so he's coronated with a crown, but ironically, it scratches his head instead of glorifies his head like an earthly king would have. And there's a sign on his cross that says, Hail, King of the Jews. Very interesting. The gospel authors are really intentional about telling us that even though these people who put Jesus to death thought they were mocking him through making him king during his crucifixion, what's really going on is Jesus is becoming king in his crucifixion. We see the birth, we see his ministry of what the kingdom of God looks like and what accomplishes what the kingdom of God, what brings 
God's kingdom in a new and special way is the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. This is why Psalm 22 is so, so important. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not what it looks like. There's more to the story than what you see. When everyone else was seeing hopelessness, Jesus, in quoting that psalm, was seeing hope. He was telling everybody it's not what it looks like. Things aren't as bad as they seem. Even though what I'm saying is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know where that psalm is from. You know where that is pointing to. Read the psalm. It starts with hopelessness and ends with hope. It starts with dread and despair and ends with God ruling and God reigning and all of the nations acknowledging that God is king. It's not what it looks like. There's more to the story than what you see. One thing that God loves to do throughout uh, the entire Bible, really, is he loves to, to show you it's not what it looks like. If you look and read through the Bible, the constant theme is it's not what it looks like. We'll take Moses, for example. Moses is called by God to deliver his people from Egyptian slavery. Moses is not a young man. He's an old man. He's had a family. He's had kids. He's an old man. Not only that, he sucks at talking in front of people. So how is he going to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt? And this is what God says. I'm paraphrasing. Hold up. It's not what it looks like. With me, I'm going to change the situation. I'm going to change the circumstance. I know you might see yourself like this, hopeless, but it's not what it looks like. With me, there's hope. What do we see um, in 1 Samuel? Israel's now in the promised land, and we have um, Samuel the prophet looking for a new king. So what does he do? He goes to a town, and there's a bunch of strong men and strong boys from this family. And one by one, Samuel goes up to them and rejects every single one of these should-be kings from a world's perspective. And then Samuel's like, are these all your sons, he says to the father. And the father says, well, no, we have one more son. He's the youngest, he's small, he's out in the field, he's actually a shepherd. And Samuel said, I want to see this son. Looks at the son, God tells him, anoint him as king. It's not what it looks like. Even though David, King David, started with lowly beginnings, the youngest in his family, he then became king of a nation. David lived a life of it's not what it looks like. God didn't overlook him. God saw his life and said, with me, it's not what it looks like. From hopelessness to hope. I can change your circumstance. I can change your situation. There is always hope with me. It's not what it looks like. Jesus even did this when he chose the 12 disciples. We might think these must be the A class, you know, the best of the best. If Jesus chose them, they are probably academically strong, incredibly handsome men, strong people. Well, no. These were probably like the overlooked people in society. They were the fishermen. They were the tax collectors. They were the people who people didn't want to have in high positions of authority. And what did Jesus do? He went to those people. And he said, it's not what it looks like. These 12 people are going to bear witness to my resurrection. And they're going to lead this movement that is going to sweep over the entire world. 
these, three, these 12 people who are overlooked, who people would cast aside and say, there's nothing special about them. They can barely even read. And Jesus said, it's not what it looks like. There's more to what you see, especially through me. I don't know what you might be going through this week or what you might be going through in life. Maybe you have a job right now that you absolutely hate. Your boss is always on your case. Uh, You're just not motivated at work. You're finding it quite pointless and hopeless. Maybe you're not making enough money to provide for your family. Uh, Maybe your coworkers aren't the nicest people in the world. But I'm here to tell you, with God, it's not what it looks like. There's more to your story than what you can currently see. God wants to bring you from hopelessness to hope. Maybe you are in a family that is experiencing some dysfunction right now. Maybe you want your parents to get off your back and you're just kind of doing your own thing, or maybe you're a parent and your children are just doing whatever they want and you're just, you're just confused, you can't have a good meal together where you're not at least fighting once and you're having outbursts constantly and you just feel a lack of unity in your family. And I'm here to tell you that it's not what it looks like. There's more to your story than meets the eye with God. He wants to bring you from hopelessness to hope. He wants to bring you from darkness to light. He wants to change, and he wants to rewrite your story. Maybe you just, you just feel like crap all the time. I'm sorry if that language offended some people, but sometimes you've got to use stuff like that. Maybe you just, you can't wait to go to sleep, but you hate the idea of waking up. Maybe you just don't want to go through life anymore because you don't see a way out of your circumstance or what's going on. I'm here to tell you that it's not what it looks like. There's more to what's going on than you can see. With God, he wants to bring you from hopelessness to hope. Jesus on the cross was saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the moment of utter hopelessness, God was doing something that the crowd couldn't see. It's not what it looks like with God. There's more to what's going on than you can see that you currently know. See, God has a history of taking those who are desperately hopeless in their situations and in their circumstances and completely changing it around. Jesus on the cross is probably the most hopeless situation you can ever imagine. A man dying as a criminal who is perfect in every single way. That is the most unfair thing that I can imagine. But in that moment, in that circumstance, God is expressing to the world Jesus is expressing to the world, even though this is the most hopeless thing you have ever seen in your life, there's hope. There's hope. We have a a God who is ruling, who is reigning, who is above all and over all, and in this most, in this horrible situation, God is ruling and he is changing things from hopelessness to hope. He's changing the story. And I'm here to tell you, maybe this is the one thing you need to know today, that no matter what you're going through, if you lean into God, if you embrace Jesus, if you embrace God, 
he can rewrite your story from hopelessness to hope. He can rewrite it. He can, he can let you know that it's not what it looks like, what you're going through. There's more to what's going on with God than what you can see. And the cross is the ultimate. It's not what it looks like. The world sees a dead man, but God sees a kingdom come. God doesn't see a dead-end job. He sees an opportunity that has more possibilities than you currently realize. God doesn't see a broken family. He sees the potential for a breakthrough of hope and healing. God doesn't see a pointless life. He sees somebody who is called by him to accomplish God's will on earth as it is in heaven. This is because God truly believes that it's not what it looks like. Nothing is as it seems with God. Nothing is as it seems with God. We serve a God who is ruling, who is reigning, who is above all, who is over all, and all he wants people to do is to follow him, to embrace his kingdom, to embrace his way of life. That's all he wants. And once you get on the train that is God's kingdom moving forward, you'll never want to look back because it's bringing you from hopelessness to hope. Let's pray this morning. Jesus, we thank you so much. We thank you so much that you've given us hope. You've given us a reason to live. You've given us a reason to love. And you've given us a reason to do our absolute best in life. And we just thank you so much for your crucifixion, for your work on the cross, and for your love for us. What I pray right now is I pray for those people who might be experiencing a lack of hope, hopelessness, a despair, depression, anxiety, fear. Lord, I pray against all those things in Jesus' name. And what we ask is for you to overcome all of those emotions and feelings and circumstances, Lord, and that you would infuse hope into people's lives today. We know that you love every single one of us. You love the entire world. You gave your life for the world, Lord. And we just thank you so much for that. We can't repay that, but that's not true. You've given us that through your grace. So we thank you so much for your love.